Let's pray together. Our great God, as we come to the time of our worship, Lord, where we set under the preached word, God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear the truth of your word. God, we pray that you would give our pastor strength to boldly proclaim your word today and that the lost among us, Lord, would be called to true faith and repentance. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I encourage you to turn in your copy of God's Word once again to Mark's Gospel. We're still here in chapter 4. And we're going to be working through, we've spent the last two weeks looking at First of all, the parables in general. How do we understand the parables? How do we interpret the parables? What are the purpose of the parables? And we saw it was a twofold purpose, both to exclude and to include. Uh, contrary to what some of us were taught or, or believed growing up, we, the parables were not some simplified way to make the message of the kingdom more accessible or more clear. In fact, Jesus says to his apostles that these were actually designed to obscure the truth of the kingdom from some. But in today's text, we find three parables, three other parables that build upon the first. As we looked last week at the parable of the sower, and we saw the centrality of Christ as the central figure. The soils are not central. The seed is not first central. It is the king. It is the sower who is central, and then the seed is his word. Well, two of our, of our texts today, as we look verses 21 to 34, two of them are very clearly parables, and the first is sort of a comparison. It, it, is, it has the effect of, of a parable, and we have to ask the question, how do these three, in our Bibles, they're, in our English Bibles, they're three separate paragraphs, but how do those three tie together with each other, but also, is Jesus starting some new topic? Is this a new teaching in addition to the Sermon on the Mount, or the, I'm sorry, the parable of the sower? And the answer is no, this is one unified teaching, but we need to figure out how do they connect together? Because he talks about lights being put under a bushel basket or under a bed versus on a lampstand. Then he talks about seeds being sown by a farmer and then overnight it grows up. And then he talks about this, the, a mustard seed being planted into the ground, the smallest of all seeds, seemingly insignificant, and yet when it's fully grown, it produces a large tree in which even the birds of the air are able to find shade and protection. How do we tie these together? Before I read the text, I want to try to solve that dilemma and give you a point of reference to tie these together, even as you hear the Word of God read. In verse 22, Jesus makes this statement, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. So we have to ask, what is this secret that's, going to be, that's currently hidden that later will be exposed? And unfortunately, sometimes when you hear this passage taught, what, that is, what the answer to that question is, well, secret sins. Things that were once hidden, things that were done in the darkness, that will all be exposed. Well, that's a true statement, but that's not what this text is talking about. What is the secret? Well, we go back over to verse 10. This is the explanation that he gave privately to his disciples concerning the parables, and particularly the parable of the sower. And in verse 11, he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. What is the secret of the kingdom of God? It is that Christ has come as the long-awaited messenger, as the anointed one, as the Messiah, as the King of kings and Lord of lords. That is the mystery that's being revealed. That is the secret. And in, in the New Testament usage of this word secret or mystery, it's not that it's something that that's, we can't figure out. It's something that was previously veiled 
and has now, in Christ, been revealed. It's now been made known. So that's the title of today's sermon, is the revelation of the kingdom. This is how these parables all connect together, is Jesus is speaking to us about the nature of how his kingdom is going to be revealed. And we notice three things about it. Before I read the text, have these things in your mind as we, as, as we read through the text. First of all, is we're going to see the certainty of it. The certainty. The kingdom of the living God revealed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ is going certainly to be revealed. There's no ambiguity. There's, there's no suspense about this fact. The kingdom is going to be revealed. And that's what his first parable teaches. Secondly, just because that is certain doesn't mean that we don't have duties and responsibilities as his people. What is our duty as God's people with respect to the kingdom of God? The revelation of the kingdom of God. And thirdly, what is the effect? As the kingdom of God, as this mystery is revealed, certainly and surely, what's the effect of that? The gospel message is the cause, but what is the effect? We'll consider that together. So let's read the text now. Follow along with me in your copy of God's Word, beginning in verse 21. Now the scene here is still the same scene that we saw at the beginning of chapter 4. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea in verse 1, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. Now, we, Mark interrupts that narration to kind of take us to another scene after all these things had taken place, where the disciples come to him privately and ask for an explanation. But it isn't, that, that scene didn't happen chronologically, and then he goes back to teaching publicly. He's taught publicly. And so what we see in verse 21 and following is the continuation of his public teaching. So this is, think about it in your mind, this is uninterrupted. He's given the parable of the sower, and then immediately goes into the next parable. So verse 21, and he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And, he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has and he said, what, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them. As they were able to hear it, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. May the Lord bless us in the reading of his word. Let's consider, firstly, from the text, the certainty, the certainty of the revelation of the kingdom. Again, all of these instances we're going to read about, the two parables and the other description that we see here, all of them are, are describing to us something about the nature of the revelation of the kingdom. That's the connecting theme here. This mystery that Jesus says was hidden and only given to the, to the apostles, only given to those in a small circle initially, it won't always be that way. It will not always remain a secret. It will not always remain veiled. The kingdom certainly will be 
revealed. The kingdom and its king will not always remain a mystery. All things are going to be made clear. It cannot be hidden. But in order to establish that fact, we need to understand who he's speaking of here. Who is the light? When he says in verse 21, and he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Well, what or who is this light? We're kind of assume, we're kind of taught to assume is that it's us. That I'm the light, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, right? That's what we're taught. But is that true? Surely, the light is Christ himself. But wait a minute, doesn't Christ say, let your light so shine among men? that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Yes, but what light is he talking about? He's talking about light as if the moon has reflected the sun. He certainly said that, and the light to which he refers is reflected light. It's not original light. As the moon shines before men in the darkness, so we too reflect the light and the love of God revealed in us and through us. But saints, we're not the source we're not the origin of this light. And see, we saw last week with the parable of the sower, who was the central figure in that parable? The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sower. And so when he says to the, to the disciples back in verse 10, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. What is this secret? The Lord Jesus is the secret. He is the one. And then in verse 13, he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? See, Jesus is the interpretive key to all of them. So we come to this one with respect to the light that's brought in. Is it to be put under a basket? See, Jesus is describing something that to his disciples, if you put yourself in their place, might have been complicated to hear at first. Because he's saying, on the one hand, I'm saying this in parables so that the prophets will be fulfilled Seeing, they will not see. Hearing, they will not understand. And at the same time, I am a light that cannot be hidden. I will be made known. He is the sower of the gospel seed, and we see that he is the light. Jesus is the light that cannot be hidden. So what is the secret of the kingdom of God? The answer is, who is this secret? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in John's gospel, John makes much of this theme with respect to Jesus being the light. He begins his gospel. In fact, in verse 4, the very first chapter, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And just a few verses later, John says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So we, we interpret this first parable as a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not understand. This is the light of the, of the person and work of Jesus himself. John goes on in, John verse, in John's Gospel, chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in chapter 12 of John's gospel, verse 35, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Saints, so certain is this revelation of the mystery of the kingdom that the same Apostle John would later see in a, in a dramatic vision recorded in the book of the Revelation. He records this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be 
no night there. So when Jesus declares here in verse 21, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket, under a bed, and not on a stand, he's speaking about himself. I will not be hidden. I will not be concealed forever. My kingdom is going to be made known. So the certainty of the revelation of the kingdom is his first point. And again, he's, he's wanting to explain to them that yes, for now, for now, the veil remains. But one day the Spirit's going to come. I'm going to pour out my own Spirit upon the world, upon mankind. And by means of my word and spirit, my kingdom will be made known through the instruments of the apostles and the church built on that foundation. The certainty of the revelation of the kingdom of heaven does not mean, however, that God's people have no responsibility. We can sit back and say, oh, well, this is all going to happen. Then we can put it on cruise control, right? We don't have anything that we have to do. There's nothing, there's there's no no duty, there's no responsibility placed upon us as kingdom citizens since it's so certain that everything's going to be revealed. But the certainty of the fact that the light of Jesus will dawn through the whole world does not mean that we have no duty. Because God is a God who uses means. It actually is the certainty of his dawning kingdom. It is the certainty of the revelation of his kingdom that gives power to us in our duties. So let's consider what are these duties? And I think that's that's the next part of what he says here. Verse 23, he says, If anyone has ears, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given to him, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Jesus is still speaking here about this same subject, the revelation of the kingdom. First of all, he says, it's certain. It's going to happen. The lamp will not be hidden. But here, to those who actually have been given ears to hear, what is their duty? What is their responsibility? It means to give heed Pay attention to what you hear. Notice there's a double duty. There's a double duty, both to hear and to make known. Both to hear and to make known. With privilege comes duty. Hearing and understanding the word of the kingdom is a work of divine grace. And Jesus says, to whom much is given, much is required. There's an immediate implication here to those who remain outside of Christ. If if you're here this morning, know that the the, the kingdom of Christ is being proclaimed. The gospel is being offered to you, that there is redemption, there is reconciliation, there is forgiveness of sins by only one means, through the means of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every man, every woman, every child is born dead in sin and at enmity with God. And Jesus says, here's the great mystery of the kingdom, that God in his own person has provided the remedy for that, that God has sent his only begotten son to take on our human flesh. Jesus assumed to himself our human flesh to bear for us our sin, to atone for us in a way that we could never do ourselves, to live the life of perfect and entire obedience to the law of God so that by faith that righteousness can be yours along with the forgiveness of your sins. But you must hear this. You must heed the word of God. You must, as Jesus says, pay attention to it. This is not a suggestion. This is not a mere offer. This is a commandment. Pay attention to the word that you hear. And then Jesus adds to that, with whatever measure you use, it's going to be measured to you. This is somewhat of an idiom, somewhat of an expression that would be common among the Jews. And you can remember from your your Old Testament, if you read through the book of Leviticus, for example, or Numbers, you're going to see prohibitions against dishonest weights and measures. And it was customary, if you would head to the market, you would have a weight in your bag. 
Maybe it was one shekel. And some were uh, covetous and larcenous in their hearts, and they would carry two different weights, depending on what they were buying or selling. If they were buying, they would carry a heavy, heavy weight, so that they, they might buy one shekel, but it was really 1.2 shekels. Or if they were selling, they might have one that was only eighth, an eighth of a, of a, or eight-tenths of a shekel. But they would sell a full shekel. And so this became an expression. With whatever measure you use, it's going to be measured out to you. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, pay attention to what you hear. Unmerited grace, unmerited favor does not remove your responsibility to believe the gospel. To hear it, to own it as your own. It does not remove your own responsibility. And this is why... For both believer and unbeliever alike, the apostles pressed in upon the mind of man the responsibility that humans have. See, just because we subscribe, and we do, to the doctrines known as Calvinism, that there is an unconditional election, that doesn't take away our responsibility, does it? We have a responsibility to believe what he's put before us. We have a responsibility to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even as a believer, to the unbeliever, you must hear, you must heed and take advantage of the word offered to you. But if you're a believer in Christ, if you've walked with Christ for years and years and years, this imperative falls upon you as well. Pay attention to what you hear. Not only in this sentence, in this paragraph, or in this sermon, but in every time you hear the word of God, are you paying attention? Are you giving full heed to what you hear? If you turn with me to 2 Peter, in Peter's second epistle, Peter is applying these very things. Peter's second letter in the very first chapter. Peter's writing here to believers. He's writing to those who are in Christ. He said, and we know this because he says, begins his letter, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Then he says this in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, notice what he says, in light of what you have received as Christians, as those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with an apostle, in light of that, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brother, brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, Peter is, is expanding upon and putting a sharper point on, on the very same thing that our Lord is saying here by way of parable. Take heed to what you hear. Pay attention to it. Meditate upon it. Give thought to it. And then diligently put it into practice. Paul, Peter says, add to these things. There, there is a diligence pressed upon the people of God here. Not a passive hearing of the Word of God, 
not just a cognitive process where the words come in and echo across your eardrum and those get converted into a brain signal and your brain discerns what they mean and you're saying, okay, I can, I can understand the vocabulary, I can understand the words that are being used. The command is much deeper than that. Pay attention. Take heed. Internalize. Learn what you are being taught and apply it. Be diligent to apply that. Listen to J.C. Ryle. I think this is very helpful. He says, this is a principle which we find continually brought forward in Scripture. All that believers have is undoubtedly of grace. Their repentance, faith, and holiness are all the gift of God, but the degree to which a believer attains in grace is ever set before us as closely connected with his own diligence in the use of means and his own faithfulness in living, uh, living fully up to the light and knowledge which he possesses. You see what's happening here. Our Lord is is putting before his disciples and before us this tension. This tension between divine agency and divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We can't flatten out the contour, saints, and say, well, that if God is sovereign, it means we have no responsibility. No, because God is sovereign, we are responsible. We are responsible to hear the word of God, to make much use of the word of God. Uh, Ryle continues, He says, but the degree to which a believer attains grace, or attains in grace, is ever set before us as closely connected with his own diligence in the use of means and his own faithfulness in living up to the light and knowledge which he possesses. Indolence and laziness are always discouraged in God's word. Labor and pains in hearing, reading, and prayer are always represented as bringing their own reward. Attention to this great principle is the main secret of spiritual prosperity. The man who makes rapid progress in spiritual attainments, who grows visibly in grace and knowledge and strength and usefulness, will always be found to be a diligent man. He leaves no stone unturned to promote his soul's well-doing. He is diligent over his Bible diligent as a hearer of sermons, and diligent in his attendance at the Lord's table, and he reaps according as he sows. Let us never forget our Lord's words in this passage. By your standard of measure to your souls, it will be measured to you. The more we do for our souls, the more shall we find God does for them. Now as Calvinists, does that offend you? Have you, have you slipped into sort of a, a, a hyper-Calvinism that says, well, God is responsible, God is sovereign, and all things will just happen? Are you neglecting the means by which God causes them to happen? The Apostle Paul then connects these, these duties here of hearing to the duty of proclaiming. So there's a double duty when it comes to, the, to receiving the kingdom of God, the revelation of the kingdom of God, we as God's people have first the duty to hear it, to hear it ourselves. We also have the duty to see it proclaimed and to encourage the proclamation of this kingdom. You turn with me to, to the book of Romans. Paul works this out famously in, in Romans chapter 10. <clears throat> in Romans chapter 10, He, he's, he's working through this, this theological dilemma that ultimately there's no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile if, if either or both has rejected the gospel. He says, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, that is, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? You see what Paul's saying? No one can hear. No one can believe. No one can respond if no one has first preached to them. 
Saints, we have a duty, a double duty, a dual duty, not only to hear the Word of God, but to see to it that it's proclaimed. It is not sufficient to hide the seed of God's Word in our own barn and close the door. We have a duty to see the Word of God proclaimed. And do you know that when we participate publicly in the worship of God, when we give ourselves to the ordinances of God, when we submit ourselves to these things, that we are proclaiming together his kingdom. Paul makes this explicit when we think about the Lord's Supper. And I mentioned this week by week, but Paul says, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you do what? We together proclaim. We proclaim our Lord's death until he comes. But it is the same with the other ordinances. When we pray together, aren't we testifying to one another and to a watching world that Christ has come, that Christ is the King, that His kingdom is being revealed? When we sing, as we sang this morning, a mighty fortress is our God. Here is the church of Jesus Christ. Here is Mount Zion, His holy nation that He's preserving as she proclaims His kingdom. In every ordinance, and every element of worship, we're doing likewise. But we have this duty. This, this duty is, is double. It's almost a double-double. It's a double duty in the sense that we have the duty both to hear and to proclaim. And it's double-double in the sense that that duty falls upon us both individually and corporately. Both individually and corporately. Individually, are we hearing the Word of God? Saint, are you, this morning, hearing the Word of God and taking heed to that? Making preparation for it? Fathers, in your homes, are you preparing your families in advance for this? Are you coming in cold on a Sunday morning and thinking that the Word of God will, will find good footing, good soil in you? Are you and in your children? Fathers and mothers, as you pray for the salvation of your children, are you also actively actively cultivating the means that he uses? Are you gathering around on a, on a Saturday afternoon or a Saturday evening with your household? Looking ahead. You knew where we were last week in Mark chapter 4. It doesn't take a super abundant imagination to figure out where we'll be this week, at least approximately, right? Read it ahead. Ask questions of the text. Consider these things together. Pray over it and pray specifically that God would open the eyes and the ears of your children, of husbands for wives and wives for husbands, both individually and corporately. Then corporately, do we pray for one another? Do we pray that the, God, that the Word of God would bear fruit in one another? You look around the room and say, God, will you, will you help my brothers, my sisters, whom I love, whom I've covenanted with, will you help them to hear the Word of God, to bear good fruit, that that word would find fruitful soil in them. And surely we have this double duty, or maybe, if you will, the double, double duty, both to hear and to make known the kingdom of our triune God. And at the same time, we, we are assured that the light of the gospel is always going to bear fruit. The gospel, Paul says, is the power of God unto salvation. It's the gospel power is the cause of our salvation, and yet God uses means. Well, then we, I think the Lord then contemplates, by way of parable, the effect of this. Here's our duty. Here's our duty. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Pay attention to what you hear, but the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. And then what does he, what does he say? For to the one who has, more will be given. This is sanctification. The more knowledge and understanding you have, the more you submit yourself to the ordinances of the gospel, the more he will multiply and add your understanding to you. But then he says, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The hypocrite, the pretender, the false, the false convert, even what he claims to have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away if he does not submit himself to this. Again, he's building upon... The parable of the sower, isn't he? 
we think back to the parable of the sower. There were four different soils our Lord mentioned, but only one represented true faith. Only one pr- produced abiding fruit. Now let's think about the effects. I think we see this in the two parables, these two brief parables. And we need to interpret these, again, in light of the parable of the sower. Remember, it's Jesus who is the sower, and it is the word of the kingdom, which is the seed. And just as we saw a double duty, here we see a double effect. And again, both an individual effect of the gospel, but also we could say a corporate or even a cosmic effect of the gospel of the revelation of the kingdom. Look at these two parables. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. For those of you who are gardeners, you you, you know exactly what he's talking about, and you don't have to be a gardener to understand the concept. The farmer places seed in the ground. He sows in hope but he doesn't understand all the mysteries that happen once that seed is out of his sight. It's in the darkness of the ground and the, the, the warmth, the moisture of the soil. And Jesus says, and, he, and we don't press his words in such a, uh, a hyper-literal way. He says, the earth produces by itself. Jesus is not teaching science class here. He's not saying that everything, he's not saying that, everything that happens is the cause of the earth itself. What he's saying is it's the mystery here. It's revealed under the earth. We can't see it. And yet something awesome is happening. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. The first parable is an encouragement to us that the gospel will take root in your own soul and bear fruit, sometimes imperceptibly to you. That's the point. Sometimes you walk away from any given service, and you think, well, that was nothing particularly special. Uh, That sermon didn't really do it for me. I didn't learn anything profound. Uh, I didn't feel anything in particular. But do you believe by faith that weak by week, by week, by year, by year, by year, that God is faithful to cause his word to take root in you and grow. And when you are diligent in the use of those means, that he is faithful, and you are able, in a sense, to sow in hope, as the farmer does. The seed is at first hidden in the soil. It's later revealed in very powerful ways. And and isn't this observable individually for every true Christian? And you may not look from week to week and see your own growth or be particularly impressed with it. But hopefully if you look back over a period of years, you see those things with which I once struggled, I don't as much anymore. Old habits and, and old affections have been replaced with more glorious ones, more godly ones. More and more, my my heart naturally wants to to, to set itself on heavenly things rather than earthly things. But this is also publicly and and corporately true of every true church, that the Word of God bears fruit almost secretly overnight. For pastors, this is an encouragement, whether in in the pulpit or in the counseling room. This is a great encouragement. I, I can trust that God's Word, by from my vantage point, is a secret movement of the Spirit of God under the earth, so to speak, under the cover of darkness, so to speak, is producing fruit. And there are days as a pastor where you go away sometimes discouraged. Every pastor will tell you Mondays are rough. And because you're, you, you think, oh, I wish I had said this. I forgot to say that. I wish I had said this differently. And, and the, the picture here is not of, of sloth, In verse 27, the farmer sleeps and rises night by day. That's not a picture of of slothful sleeping. It's a picture of of faithfulness, of sleeping and rising, sleeping and rising, sleeping and rising, all in faith, knowing that your work is going to produce a fruit. 
not because you're a good farmer. It's because God is good. And God is the one who provides the increase. So this rising and lying down speaks to a diligence. It's not a passive, it's not a slothful waiting. John Gill says it's a mystery in nature how the seed under the clods, where it dies before it is quickened, should spring up and grow and bring forth fruit. And it's a mystery. Jesus says it has to die before it brings life. Gill goes on, and so it is in grace, how the word of God first operates on a sinner's heart and becomes the engrafted word there. The time when, and much less the manner how, grace by this means is implanted in the heart are not known to the soul itself and still less to the ministers of the word who sometimes never know anything of it. Means we don't know even the time that grace begins to produce fruit, much less the particulars of the effects of it. But when we do, not till some time after, his work is done secretly and powerfully under the influence of divine grace without their knowledge, though by them as instruments, so that though the sowing and planting are theirs, all the increase is God's. This may encourage attendance on the ministry of the word and teach us to ascribe the work of conversion entirely to the power and the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, this is true in your own soul. It's true in the hearts of your brothers and sisters, both individually and then also corporately. We have this duty to pray for and to seek the growth of the Word of God in one another. But parents, is this not a particular comfort to you? Think this through. As you labor day by day with your own children, and some of those days are long. As the saying goes, the, the hours are long and the years are short. And, and you labor and think, I'm not making progress. My son's not understanding this. My daughter's still wrestling with this. Is this not a comfort to you that you can go home tonight? You can give thanks to God for your children. You can trust that he is a faithful God, that he will use the means that he has appointed. And you can lay your head on your pillow and sleep with comfort. You can pray for them, and you can trust that the seed of his word is always, always, always at work. Will you believe that and, be tr- and trust that, be comforted by it? Again, it's not a sloth. It's not a passive parenting that, that, that I'm advocating here. But some go to bed with an anxiety, and you've prayed for your children as you ought to pray. You've prayed for their souls. You've prayed for their conversion. You're praying for their sanctification. Do you trust that the Word and Spirit will do its work. Call upon the Lord of the harvest to bring fruit in the hearts of your children, even as you rest your head to sleep. Take comfort, take courage. Your God is good, and He always does good. Then in the second parable, Jesus expands even further on this. We're thinking through, what is, what is the revelation of the kingdom? Look, looks, what does it look like? First of all, it's certain. First of all, it is certain. Secondly, it comes with a duty, both to hear and to believe, right? But here, the effects, we're contemplating the effects of it, and he gives us another parable. Verse 30, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet, when it is sown... It grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Again, Jesus is not speaking here as a scientist. Some have tripped up on this parable. Ah, this mustard seed is not technically the smallest seed in the world. He's using hyperbole. Again, he's not teaching a a science lesson here. He's teaching a lesson in relative size. His kingdom, when it first comes, when it first, is, when it first appears, it seems really small. In early morning, when you see this, the, the horizon out to the east, just begin to glow kind of orange. The sun doesn't look very big when it's so low on the horizon. But by noonday, 
you can see its full glory. You can feel its full heat. And you see that nothing escapes its light. And Jesus is saying something about the kingdom of God here. When we first see it, either in us individually or in the world at large, it seems insignificant. I mean, think about this. As the, as the, the, the New Testament, New Covenant church was born, it seemed at first very insignificant compared to the number of Jews, for example. The number of Christians was very, very small. And even smaller still compared to the number of the Gentiles. Just the Roman Empire alone far eclipsed the rank and the number of Christians. Peter's first sermon, we're told there were 3,000 added that day. And the church grew very, very rapidly. And as you read through the book of Acts, you see the branches of this mustard tree growing out. And so that the gospel went as far as Rome, went throughout the whole Roman Empire. And over the the first few hundred years, this, this tree grew very, very rapidly. The parable is both an illustration and a prophecy. I think Jesus is is borrowing thematically from one of the prophecies of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 4, we read this. The angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? It's a reasonable question, don't you think? Zechariah is receiving this vision. He sees this vision of of a lampstand of gold, a bowl on top of it, seven lamps on it, seven lips on each of the lamps, two olive trees, and he said, I don't know what to make of this. What is this? And the angel who talked with me answered and said, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, who are you, O great mountain? Before Jerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. See, there's a temptation individually, corporately, and perhaps even cosmically to despise these days of small things. In your own soul, you can think, well, there's, it seems as if the fruit is small. It's a, it's, a, it's a small things in me spiritually. Do you trust that as you apply these things and, and take heed to the word of God diligently, that God will produce fruit in you? As we think about an individual church, our own church, for example, do we despise the day of small things? Do we think to ourselves, well, our numbers are insignificant in human terms? Our, our, the numbers of dollars that we have are insignificant in human terms. Do, do we think that, God's, that the kingdom of God is restrained by what we see as limitations? When we contemplate the spread of the gospel in the world at large, do we fret over the seeming progress of the wicked? Or do we trust that God's kingdom is going to be revealed? It's going to continue to be made manifest. The kingdom is not going to be hidden. The light of our king cannot remain in darkness. The light cannot stay hidden. 
all of the words and the works of Jesus are going to be made known. And ultimately, he's going to return visibly with a trumpet shout, coming to the clouds on glory with all of the angels in a heavenly realm with him. And the full measure of his kingdom will be manifested, will be revealed. So we see in, in this series of parables the certainty of the revelation of God's kingdom. It's certain. It's not going to remain hidden. And just in case, we're tempted to think, as, he, as Jesus speaks in parables, and, and we think, oh, well, that must be what our job is then, is to continue to obscure the gospel. May it never be. It is our job to make it as plain as we can in our own souls, in our own homes, in, in, in our churches, and wherever God gives us opportunity. You have a neighbor who's walking in darkness. You have a light, saints. Can you testify and bear witness to that light that will not remain hidden? Will you call upon your own soul? Will you call upon your, your, your children, your family, your, your neighbors, your co-workers to take heed to God's word, to hear it, to hear it with understanding, to pursue it with diligence. Will you believe that God's going to produce a sure effect as his kingdom is revealed? That he's going to produce the sure effect that the seed of righteousness will grow in you? His word will never return void. It will grow in all those who belong to him. That, that that revelation of the kingdom will be made known more and more as the word of God expands, as the word of God increases its footprint in a sense. The kingdom of God hasn't grown. The kingdom of God is. But the revelation of that kingdom grows. More and more will hear and believe, just as certainly as you have. God has ordained many, many to life. Let's give thanks and pray. And ask for our God to give us the understanding as we consider this matter. Father, we are thankful that you have made yourself known. We can so easily take for granted the fact that you've given to us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that by, by your grace and power, we, we will not be passive in that. That we will not receive your word as, as the man who has looked in the mirror and then walks away forgetting what he's seen. Help us to, to, to be diligent in, in seeking understanding of your word, of seeking to exhort and encourage one another in your word, and all the more as we see the day approaching. Help us to be conformed together to the very image of Christ. Help us grow in our love for your word in, in our own lives and as we as we rejoice in seeing it take root in our brothers and sisters may you cause us to abide in that that mutual joy we ask this in Christ's name